A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio and welcome to day one of the rest of your life. And I'm not joking when I say this, for the first time in what I think is about five months, this morning's newspapers aren't leading with stories about the coronavirus. This, whether you know it or not, is a massive step forward, right? What it means is that the great messengers of our time are getting fed up with the spin. They're getting fed up with the statistics. They're getting fed up with the warnings. They're getting fed up with the predictions about the worst pandemics who ever hit our shores. And they're getting fed up with the narrative that all we have to talk about is the coronavirus. And I'm very excited about that. I'm actually rather encouraged by it because I know, as you do, that this is something that we have to get past. This is something that we have to get through. This is something that we have to put to one side. And this is something that we have to move on from because otherwise we are dead in the water. It's that simple. That must be the reason why Fleet Street has finally woken up to what I've been saying for a very long time. This is not the end of the world by any means. What could possibly be any other explanation? They are literally bored with it as much as we are, right? Mark my words, this is the first step into breaking the deadlock. This is the first step into unlocking the gates, loosening the shackles of despair. Trust me, people, this is a great day and the government will have to pivot accordingly. Never mind all this nonsense about locking up London. Never mind all this nonsense about locking up Manchester. Never mind all this nonsense about shutting down travel and air uh, bridges. This is all about getting us out of the mire, about getting us back to normal, about getting us back into the restaurants, into the bars, into the hotels and into each other, quite frankly. Let's get on with it, please. Enough is enough. First up this morning, we'll be talking to the leader of the Tories at City Hall, uh, the opposite number of Sadiq Khan, the queen of common sense. She is, of course, uh, Susan Hall. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be hearing from Serco, the company making billions from government service contracts to look after illegal migrants in hotels up and down the land. I'll be trying to find out how widespread the problem is and just how much it is costing. Also, we will check in with Georgie Frost, our consumer and travel correspondent, currently trapped in Spain with the latest on your holiday news and we'll be asking for your stories of coming back from foreign parts is anyone actually taking your details is anyone actually taking your temperature and is anyone actually checking whether you are going to go into quarantine 0344 499 1000 we'll also keep you updated of course with all the latest news from the restaurant business after yesterday's launch of eat out to help out i didn't bother did you uh, and we will be asking whether those of you who have gone back to work now resent those that haven't because if you do, I wouldn't be at all surprised. You're listening, of course, to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. We're talking, of course, about Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So yesterday, right, we had a whole host of different things being said by the government. We had a whole host of different plans being laid out in various newspaper articles. We had a whole list of kind of, you know, what can only be described as leaks that were coming out from one place or another. Kevin O'Sullivan, uh, my cohort here at Talk Radio, who does the uh, weekend slots from 10 to 1, but who also does the Thought Police with me uh, as a podcast, was not at all encouraged by the fact uh, that Boris Johnson was talking about putting a ring of steel around the M25 in London to stop anybody from coming coming in and to stop anybody from going out. And he, uncharacteristically, actually said, um, far be it from me to agree with Sadiq Khan. But actually, I agree with Sadiq Khan on not locking down London and actually telling the Prime Minister this is not the way forward. Let's talk to Susan Hall, leader of the Conservatives at London Assembly. Susan, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, um, I have to say, uh, when Kevin O'Sullivan agrees with Sadiq Khan, we think there's something very wrong in the world. What is going on? Well, there is something very wrong with the world. If he thinks that he ever gets anything right. I think what we've got to remember about all these things that came out at the weekend is that none of them came from the government. There was a lot of speculation, as you know, Mike, there's mm. speculation all over the place um, to generally a very left-wing media. The minute they can jump on anything they do, 
when the truth is it hasn't come out at all. I mean, clearly people are given things or, or number 10 is given lots of different scenarios from the worst to the best and they've got to make something out of it all. If I don't know who uh, did the leaks, but the truth of it is, um, unless it comes out of number 10 as a fact, uh, it should be treated with a, a you know, uh, given a wide berth in some respects. Yes, I totally agree with that because I didn't buy this idea that they're going to lock down everybody from the age of 50 and above. I just didn't see that as in any way a kind of viable situation. But the slightly yeah. worrying thing for me, Susan, is that I wonder whether there are people, and you'll have seen this in your time in politics, I wonder whether there are people in in in, uh, in Downing Street who are sort of floating these balloons to see whether the public likes it or doesn't like it and then making their policy changes uh, as a result of how people react. Well, um, that is said to happen. Um, I think to an extent it does. But at the moment, I mean, you've only got to turn the television on and you see such claims all over the place. Under under 50s will be let out, over 50s won't, etc., etc. I don't think there's any truth in that. None of us actually know. But I suppose if you are looking at the worst case and the best case scenario, you are going to look at a catastrophe on one end and something that's acceptable on the other end, and they've got to look at what various actions they take. What what likelihood are they to to you know put the country in a better position? Right. So um, I, I I mean I I turned on one radio um, program by accident. I have to tell you. Listen, um, I, ho- I hope then, you haven't been mis- I hope you haven't been misbehaving I, I and listening to the wrong station. Sometimes. Goodness it, me! My car can't my car can't find <laughs> um, a, a, a talk radio. And, and David Lamony was talking as if it was a done deal and people were getting so vexed on the, on the phones. And this is the trouble. The, the, the mainstream media very often are causing far more problems than they need to. Yeah, well, that is the problem, isn't it? And as far as um, what I'm trying to make out this morning is a big deal, I think it's quite important um, that no newspaper this morning is actually leading with a story about the coronavirus because I think we're all utterly sick to death of it, Susan. And I know that you, as a responsible politician, will say to me, look, you know, clearly there are people who should be concerned, there are people who should be shielding, people who are vulnerable and all of that. But the bulk of the society in which we live, uh, particularly in London right now, needs to get back to normal business, needs to get back to going to offices, needs to get back to buying coffee, needs to get back to getting sandwiches for lunch, and all of those things uh, that keep this economy going. Isn't that the case? Oh, it's completely the case. And as for schools, they must go back. There's no question about that. I mean, there are three things. We must keep washing our hands. We must wear face coverings in shops and on TfL, and we must keep our distances from people. And the trouble is, Mike, you and I are complying to all of these things, as are millions of others. But unfortunately, some people are not. They're the ones causing the issues. I mean, I don't understand how Khan insists that um, people wear masks on on public transport in London, for example, uh, Transport for London, and then won't make the bus drivers insist that people do that when they get on the buses, as an example. I mean, you know, if you're going to insist something's put in place, then make sure that... it's adhered to. And yeah. I don't know whether you've been on any of these um, buses or trains, but apparently there's so many people that aren't wearing masks and they're not in shops either, which, you know, we could all help ourselves. Yes. No, listen, I, I, I have so. deciduously avoided public transport since the middle of March when Sadiq Khan decided it was a brilliant idea to actually cut the number of trains, thereby increasing the numbers of people <laughs> travelling on the train and, and and being in close proximity to one another. However, I have been on uh, the trains a couple of times since uh, the beginning of, say, July, and I've been on a couple of buses. And what I've seen is young people getting on buses without face masks but obviously not being challenged by the driver because the driver, quite rightly, doesn't know if they're going to stab him. Well, that's the other issue, isn't it? I mean, crime on our streets is rising again. I mean, London's in a mess. And quite honestly, all that he can't ever does is blame the government. He just looks to, you know, his own situation. He is the mayor of London. He's supposed to be in control. I mean, no wonder he's not invited to Cobra. He just right. treats it... As a press opportunity, quite frankly, exactly. um, he can't be trusted to keep conversations uh, 
private, and then he'll just do a tour of the TV stations yeah. once he's been there. Yeah, so funny enough, he never he never stops at talk radio, bizarrely. But I mean, I watched the videos. <laughs> I'm sure you did uh, over the weekend of the punch up in Shoreditch High Street, uh, which appeared to be something which was entirely just spontaneous. Uh, a bunch of young guys punching each other, kicking each other, fighting in the street. I mean, if you were out and about with your family, as I would sometimes be a few years ago, you know, that would be horrific and ghastly, and it would make you sure that you would never come into London again. And I worry that London has become this kind of Wild West territory now because of Sadiq Khan and his inability to control the police, Cressida Dick's inability to get the right numbers of people. At the same time, I think five people were shot over the same weekend. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Oh, it, it is ridiculous and we need to get a grip on it. You're quite right. I mean, people running businesses, etc. if they're running a business in an area that's well known for crime, uh, that will absolutely affect how they um, they manage to make a living. Mm. Uh, we need to get a grip on, on the amount of kids that are out on the street with knives. That's why I'm a massive supporter of Stop and Search. Um, I was pleased in some of the clips going around. I know you watch Twitter a lot, um, Mike that the police were actually wearing masks. I was pleased to see that because they must be protected. It's all very well. You have all these gatherings. The poor police have to go in there and deal with it. Well, right. Um, you know, and they're just as susceptible to this wretched virus as the rest of us. No, and listen, I have total sympathy with the actual individual police officers, but clearly the management of the police is a problem, and Cressida Dick and Sadiq Khan are guilty of being completely and utterly derelict in their duty uh, in protecting the people that work for this city. And apart from anything else, I mean, you were also commenting, I think, at the weekend on that ludicrous aspect uh, of the, uh, you know, forever family kind of sort of militia-style outfits that people were wearing in Brixton uh, funnily enough now I think the best thing that's happened is people are starting to ridicule them so they look more like YM, you know, the, the YMCA oh, the rather YMCA. than the IRA uh, and also somebody's set it to the Benny Hill music now which actually is even funnier so I mean I've always said ridiculing people is a far better tool uh, than actually beating them up so so good so good luck to those people that have done that but we can't see that on our streets can we surely that can't be allowed no, we can't. I've actually uh, written to Cressida Dick about that because we need to know what they're going to do about that. We keep turning, I say we, people keep turning a blind eye because they don't want to be um, deemed as offensive to right. anybody. Uh, enough of this nonsense. Uh, they are police. They should be allowed to police properly. I'm sick to death of carrots. Um, you know, carrots and sticks are all very well, but we're getting to the point uh, we need to... Uh, you know, pulling this nonsense that's yeah. carrying on. Yeah, uh, and also and, you'll, and be, you'll have... be, I imagine, uh, Susan, you'll be privy to the statistics of, of what COVID-19 is now doing to the country. And my understanding is that while we are told that, you know, infections are on the rise in certain parts of Britain, you know, hospital admissions are certainly not on the rise. And I think, do we? is it not now time to delineate between, you know, the, the dangers of people getting it but also then the results of people getting it, which do not apparently at the moment re result in people having to go to hospital. I, I tell you what the real danger now, Mike, is is that people that have got other illnesses, try and get an appointment with a GP. I, I dare you, just try. Mm. It's almost impo impossible. You can't, can't, you can speak to them on the phone, but they won't see you in the surgeries, or lots of surgeries won't. There's an awful lot of people that are going to have illnesses out there that are just not being dealt with. So I think that really needs to go into the mix. We, we need to get GPs back seeing people. Yeah. Um, there, there's so many other issues around COVID. But the problem is that the government is damned if it does and it's damned if it doesn't. And at some point, we're all going to have to face the fact that we're going to have to go out there as long as we keep to the rules, washing hands, face coverings, keeping our distance, then life should start going back because if not, we're going to lose loads of small businesses. Other people are going to suffer from other illnesses. We've got to get the grip of this and get back out to some sort of normality. Totally, absolutely, uh, you're absolutely right to say that. And finally, uh, Susan, I mean, I've I've said this already this week, yesterday, to, to be honest, on the show, that we we seem to be at a sort of crossroads right now in terms of what government policy does next. And if we don't go down the right road, i.e. the road which kind of reopens a bit more of the economy, and we go down the other dark road, which is to kind of be frightened, to continue shielding and hiding and not going out, you know, that's going to be the death of London. And you know as well as I do, 
you know where we are here at London Bridge looking out over Borough Market the Tower of London you know there's there's relatively uh, busy streets out here there's people going to restaurants there's people going to bars but you go to Covent Garden you go to Regent Street you go to Piccadilly there's nothing going on because there's no tourists Mm. I mean it's tragic but equally I mean we have to accept that it's the government's duty to keep us as safe as they can um, it's, a, it's just such a difficult balancing act, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I've always been very jealous of very senior politicians because I'd love to be one, but right now there can't be anybody that actually wants to have that sort of onerous task because, as I said to you before, they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't, and everything that they decide can affect lives, which, of course... Is, is a very is a very difficult position for them to be in. Yeah, it really is. And as far as um, civil servants are concerned, many of them are not coming back to work, saying they're frightened to come back to London. What's the situation at City Hall? I know it's a relatively small uh, part of the jigsaw, um, but but are many people back working there or not? No. Well, because the the um, building, I think we're being told, will only take two hundred people um, because of. Of limits to to spacing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. Luckily, a lot of the work that's done at City Hall can be done remotely, yeah. which it, it is being done at the moment. I mean, the biggest concern to us all as communities is to get teachers back into schools. Yeah. Our children must go back because there's an awful lot of people that have got no childcare, and therefore it is difficult for them to go back to work. So we've got to get the schools running. We've got to. Um, Younger people have got to act responsibility, but get out there because they're less likely to be um, damaged so badly by this virus. Yes. Um, but we really do have to get back working and uh, get things back to a, a, a more of a normal state. Absolutely right. Susan Hall, Conservative Leader at London Assembly, thank you very much indeed. We do have to get back. We are at that crossroads. We are at that fork in the road. I mentioned it yesterday. I will mention it again today because let's face it. When you get to a situation where the newspapers in this country are all agreed that actually the biggest story today has got nothing to do with coronavirus, then you know that even they are getting bored with it. We've had our lunch, now let's get back to work, is what it says on the front page of the Daily Mail. The Guardian, Russians stole secret documents from ex-minister's personal email. I saw Andy dancing with Epstein girl on the front page of the Sun. Front page of the Daily Telegraph, Russians hacked cabinet minister. And that's a story about Liam Fox. And don't give paracetamol to patients, doctors are told, on the front page of the Times. We have had enough of coronavirus. We have had enough about writing about it. We've had enough about talking about it. Let's get back to normal. Let's get back out there on the streets. Let's get back out there uh, in the businesses that we run. Because if we don't do that, there is no future. There is no tax money. There is no revenue for the government. They can't do anything. For heaven's sake, you know I've been talking about this for a long time. Please go along with it. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's, though, now talk to Kate Hardcastle. Uh, it says here, Kate Hardcastle, MBE. I had no idea uh, I was in the presence of greatness. Kate, a very good morning to you. <laughs> Hi, Mike. Well, I apologise for never referring to you as Kate Hardcastle, MBE, up until this moment. <laughs> now, listen. I think our friendship can survive it, don't oh, It's just difficult, isn't it? Now, um, I don't know about you. I didn't bother with the Out to Help Out scheme yesterday. Uh, I'm sure that uh, it was it was carried out by quite a lot of people. I saw pictures of, uh, of, of certain people queuing up outside certain uh, food outlets. Um, was it a success, would you say, for day one? Speaking to a lot of different types of organisations and businesses, some felt it had been a real boost and it had got people back through the door, mm. uh, ready to try again to see if they were happy to sit in that environment because obviously there's still a lot of concerns for many people, Mike, about safety. Um, 72,000 businesses registered on there, everything from tiny little cafe associated with a, a steam railway uh, that has seen no traction whatsoever because it's part of a tourist attraction uh, through to the biggest national brands. And it's, it's been hit hard by criticism. People suggesting that we're talking about obesity one minute and then we're encouraging people to go out and eat cheaply at, at menus that perhaps don't have the most... Um, the most calorically careful items on the menu. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think at the same time, 72,000 businesses suggest that people are, are looking for many different ways to solve the solution of a time they've been hit significantly. So I think the jury's still out. 
Some people said they saw great take-ups. Some people just saying, I would have expected this anyway. But, you know, it's still a month to go. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, anything that helps people get out and about, I think, is a good thing, generally speaking. I wouldn't I wouldn't in any way uh, criticise it. However, um, what, it, it, what it won't do um, is convince people in big enough numbers, I suppose, to go to places where uh, there isn't a place to go, if you know what I mean. Because there are lots of restaurants in the centre of London, for example, that haven't even reopened. Because as far as they're concerned, without the tourism trade... There isn't any trade. And that's it. And also office workers not being back. We're hearing from a lot of organisations that had big office units that they've spent a lot of their money enabling team members to work from home. And they're not suddenly going to make a cut in that expenditure to bring people back Mm. in small numbers to office centres. Well, office trade, working lunches, meals after work, that's a significant trade for a lot of cafes and restaurants that just can't see a future in terms of even with this voucher scheme, how can they get to the numbers they need to? I mean, we just have to look. There's three stages pretty much for every business that's had some consumer-facing offer that's been hit. First and foremost, there was a period of lockdown that they had to survive somehow. Secondly, then there's been the cost of enabling safety measures, which for a lot of organisations have been significant. It's not a case of a bit of sanitizer and a face mask. Mm. Some of these organisations have had to spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, repackaging their business to right. trade. And then there's a dip in terms of the actual footfall. So it's a, a heck of a lot of stages to get through to still be surviving September, October, November time because of it. So unfortunately, I think we've got to be realistic that a voucher scheme is never going to be the cure-all. I don't think it's suggested to be that. I think it's a stimulus. Yes, and it's a stimulus for a certain part of the market as well because without wishing to be uh, facetious about it, I mean, for me, if I was going out for lunch, to get 10 quid off whatever it was I was eating uh, and or drinking uh, is pretty much a drop in the ocean. Um, It's all very well if you go to Nando's and you're going to get 10 quid off, you know, what you would have spent on 20 quid's worth of food. That's great. And I'm not denigrating it, but, you know, for a lot of people, at the other end of the market, that's not really going to do anything. And yet, there's the absolute opposite extreme of that, of people who are saying, well, how ridiculous. We, we're just wondering how we're going to survive right now. Mm. And there's been money funded towards people being helped to eat out when we don't even know how we're going to eat in. I mean, the significant rise and rise of food banks. Yeah. So I think the challenge you've got is the first time probably most of our, our lives that this kind of voucher scheme, this very commercial offer from the government, is just a, a, a drop in the ocean in terms of trying to support so many businesses that have been brutally affected. I mean, we, not, we need to look back maybe just Friday. Mm. The beauty industry, for, in this, yes. uh, for instance, a lot of small operators, very small businesses, who have been told they got the green light, again, invested in two weeks of resetting up a business into a totally different way, and then being told you can't actually reopen for another couple of weeks, which has been devastating for many of them. And yeah. they're saying, well, where's our voucher scheme? How do we get going? We've, we've had another two weeks knock here. I mean, there's just not going to be the right solution for everyone I think it's going to be a combined offer but awareness all the time is, is definitely helping no I'm sure that's right and then this morning we see a story saying Pizza Express saying it could close around 67 of its UK restaurants putting up to 1,100 jobs at risk um, I mean I think for chains it's almost a worse situation than if you only own one or two restaurants in a particular locale because the chain problem uh, presumably is that people are just not going to high streets all over the country well, I can hear a, a, a lot of small independent businesses being up in arms at that comment, Mike, because I think they'll say that they don't have the perhaps funding that some of the bigger organisations do, and they're having to do it all from the bank of family. But I think it's hard. No, no. But my point, look. my point is though um, that, that that you know, yes, of course, I my my heart goes out to those individual companies, Kate. But but what I'm talking about is if you've got a chain business, you know, you've actually got more failings going on than you have successes. So as a first, first and foremost, for Pizza Express, that will include staff members who, in, who are part of a family, who are an income generator. Mm. And this is going to be hard news to swallow once again, because even prior to the pandemic, Pizza Express were clearly marked as having challenges and they were going to have to remodify. The other side of the coin is someone somewhere has created a strategy where a lot of these chain restaurants have opened sometimes in multiple branches in a town and city perhaps they've you know driven the brand hard at a time where it looked like everything was rosy not really doing the long-term picture of how sustainable is it when you've got such right marketing and competition to actually keep these these chain brands going we, we heard about jamie's not so long ago and yeah. you know we, we're hearing now about things like frankie's and benny's i mean i think there's a certain type of market that has only an amount of disposable income to be able to spend on whatever the latest brand of choice is and it's going to be a certain type of meal and offering now picture express had something a bit different going on if, if you and i as you know we're london based so it's a different type of um 
at Buffett and Times in London. They had the jazz nights. They had this link to music. It yeah. had the history and heritage. But, you know, else, elsewhere, if you went to a Pizza Express in different areas, it, it didn't have the same vibe. Also, it was very much about um, a meal out of, of a certain price point. There was always offers associated with it, which means then you're starting to drive down the price all the time. Yeah. And they're selling the same product in supermarkets for you to take home and heat up. So is, it was everything right in the strategy anyway before we even hit a, a crisis time like this. Yes. I mean, I once went to a Pizza Express in Eastbourne with my kids uh, and they declared that they couldn't make us any pizza. And I said, why is that? And they said, we haven't got any pizza dough. And I was like, you're Pizza Express and you haven't got any pizza dough. Have you got anybody that can make pizza dough? It's not that difficult. I said, I can show you how to make it if you like. Just put me in the kitchen. And it was unbelievable. You know, and this is the problem with these chain restaurants is that they have no heart. You know, they have a body and they have a a sort of a a blood system that pumps around the, the food. But what they don't have is any common sense. It's a bit like photocopying something. At some point, the certain the, the print quality starts to wane. And I think the thing is, you can't just look at a chain that's successful and say, right, let's just repeat that format endlessly across yeah. every town and city in the place. What we've got to hope out of this, and I know it seems a long, long way in the future, is that we actually start getting some vibrancy back in place and that places feel different. That you get off a train in the UK and it doesn't look like one generic high street in front of you. It looks like a different place. That's what we've got here. We've got history. We've got heritage. And, and this is probably going to help survive that because I think we'll see more regeneration in the villages and the local places where we, those of us working from home have started to populate again and that might bring out more indie businesses alongside the nationals. Of course we need the nationals but maybe you know there has been a question of some of the chains and brands have over expanded and it's just been too much. Yes, I think you're absolutely right Kate. Brilliant to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Kate Hardcastle MBE, no less, talking about the state of uh, affairs at Pizza Express I mean there are plenty of people, Prince Andrew might be among them, uh, who will not be ashamed to see the demise uh, of Pizza Express but there will be plenty of people as well who know that the thing about chain restaurants is that you know what you're getting it's a bit like McDonald's you can go to McDonald's anywhere in the world and when you buy a Big Mac it tastes exactly the same as it tastes here as it tastes in New York, as it tastes in Paris, as it tastes in Moscow, as it tastes in Hong Kong. And that's what people like. Same goes for Pizza Express. However, uh, I, for one, will not particularly mourn their demise if they are going to disappear, but I will feel sorry for those people who work there. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, as you know, uh, yesterday we were speaking to a former MEP for the Brexit Party about Serco and exactly how much public money is actually funnelled through that company, which is owned by Nicholas Soames' brother, a man by the name of Rupert Soames. He's the CEO of the company. Uh, it seems to me that if you were running Serco, you would basically have a licence to print money. Because what you do is you call up the government and you say, oh, hello, uh, this is Serco. Oh, thanks very much indeed. We knew it was you because you've got a direct line into the Home Office. Uh, would it be possible for us to run um, the, uh, the situation whereby you transport prisoners from one prison to another, uh, or indeed from one prison to a courtroom, or from a police station to a prison, or from a police station to a courtroom. Could we have that contract, please? Uh, yes, absolutely, no problem at all. How much is it worth? About £10 billion. Thanks very much indeed. Could we also have the contract to look after the prisoners on probation so that if, for example, they get released from prison and they are given an electronic anklet or an electronic bracelet so they can be monitored by the probation service, could we get that contract as well? Of course you could. Absolutely no problem at all. Uh, Could we also get the contract to look after uh, people who are being deported from the country? Yep. That's no problem at all. Could we also get the contract uh, which involves housing people who come here illegally, who arrive on Dover Beach, who arrive on Hastings Beach, and who arrive on the beaches of Pet Level? Um, Would that be possible? Could we have that contract? Absolutely no problem at all. I mean, it beggars belief, doesn't it? I don't know whether there's any kind of uh, tendering process for this. Maybe I'll I'll form a company and say, I'd quite like to uh, look after all these immigrants who've come here illegally. I'll put them up in a hotel. I'll take £2 billion over the course of the next five years, if that's all right with you. 
Well, I don't think it is. Now, here's what we got from Serco yesterday after we approached them about what they were doing with regard to all of the illegal um, migrants coming to this country and housing them in hotels up and down the country. We basically said to them, could you please inform us of how many of these people you are housing and of how many of these people uh, are in hotels and for how long? They said this. Thank you for your email. I'm afraid that we will not be putting up anyone for interview on this. However, can I correct a couple of things, please? We do not, as you say, house and support, in quotes, illegal immigrants. We have a contract from the Home Office to house and support asylum seekers. As you will appreciate that there is a significant difference between the two. Uh, They then say you can find more information on our contract here. And they sent us a link on where their contract is. I also understand that earlier today, your presenter said that Serco manages the DLR, although I did not hear that myself. This is not the case. Serco ceased operations of the DLR contract in December 2014. Hope this helps. Well, I'll tell you what, Serco, there are three problems with your response. One, the presenter is me. My name is Mike Graham, and you better get used to hearing it because I'm going to be on your tail until I get some answers. Secondly, I didn't say that you ran the DLR contract currently. I said that you ran the DLR. That does not mean that you currently run it. It just means that you ran it. And that's true. So that's not a correction. Third, these people that you are housing are illegal immigrants. You might think they're asylum seekers, but they're only asylum seekers because they came here illegally and then sought asylum. That makes them illegal immigrants. You complete and utter idiot. So whoever you are... Mr. Uh, so-called spokesman for Serco, we've got some news for you. We've got new questions for you today. We sent them back to you today. This is what the questions are. Could you please tell us how many asylum seekers you are providing accommodation and support to and in which areas of the UK? Number two, do you anticipate housing more freshly arrived asylum seekers uh, over the course of the next six months? And if so, how many? Three, What, on average, is the cost of housing an asylum seeker on a weekly basis? Best regards, Mike Graham, the presenter. Now, if you don't answer us this time, matey, we're going to come and stand outside your door and we're going to knock on it. And then you're going to come out and we're going to film you not answering the questions. How do you like those onions? Okay, this is public money you're dealing with and this is the public you're dealing with and I represent the public. And if you don't give us an answer, mate, you'll be out of a job. Get it? Let's talk to Duncan Simpson from the Taxpayers Alliance. Hello, Duncan. Hi there, Mike. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm already sick to death of Serco. I'd quite like to see them absolutely torn down from that hideous little pedestal they think they stand on, taking public money for doing the square root of nothing, quite frankly, except ruining our country. Yeah, it's a real danger, quite a few of these companies. I mean, ultimately, you know, private companies involved in doing stuff on behalf of the state often works very, very well. But the risk of companies like Serco and other big ones like G4S and Capita is that effectively they're an arm of the state. Yeah. If you're getting so much of your revenue from central government often and quite often through local government too, then it becomes weirdly symbiotic. And for us, it's very, it's, it's very annoying. It's very difficult because ultimately, you know, if we ask, oh, how much did you give, you know, a particular company, the Circo, the G4S, this kind of contract, why did you give them that contract? How long is it going to last? What else often happens is that a central government department will turn around and say, well, commercial sensitivity. We can't tell you this because it, you know, went up to, to uh, an almost a procurement contract process so two or three firms might have competed for it. But they'll say, oh, well, actually, if we tell you this, then it might disadvantage future procurements. And obviously, because they are private companies, we can't ask private companies about the contracts that they've received from, uh, ultimately, from us, from, the t- from taxpayers. So it's, it's, it's very difficult. And ultimately, you know, I mean, Circle is an enormous company. There's these huge amount of things. I think it's the, the Boris bikes, tagging systems. They used to run laboratories for the government, uh, facilities management for lots of NHS hospitals. Um, so it's a huge company. But, you know, the impression I'm getting from this contract is that, um, you know, it's, it's really not very well thought through. And actually... There was quite a telling line in their press release yesterday, and it reads, the final contract value will reflect the actual service user volumes. So in other words, it's £1.9 billion-ish over 10 years, mm. but we don't actually know the final cost because it's conditional on how many asylum seekers forward slash illegal immigrants are actually going to be making use of these services. Right. Well, clearly, and this is why I've asked that very question today, how many more asylum seekers do you anticipate housing over the course of the next six months? And how many of the asylum seekers they are currently housing uh, do they anticipate housing for the next six months? I.e., is it an open-ended contract? I.e., uh, is there a, 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 a number at which they have a ceiling? 
uh, or are they actually encouraging the illegal human trafficking of these people into this country because it's in their interest to make profits for the shareholders? Yeah, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, ultimately, yeah, a lot of public procurement projects are just complete disaster zones. I mean, we went into, I think we went to about 10 last year, um, big ones like Thameslink, Crossrail, the Carriers, uh, West Coast Electrification, for example. And just selecting those 10 projects, I think the combined cost, uh, sorry, time overrun was just under 33 years, and the cost overrun was over £17 billion. Pounds. Right. And that's just a small selection. If you look at the, I think, 32 big major projects which the government are currently undertaking, which some of those are just alluded to, only five, five out of the 32 are going to be delivered on time. So the government is just woeful at this kind of stuff. The NHS is a, is a really key example as well at the moment. The NHS Test and Trace app, which I think the, the, um, the quango was called NHS X, I think it is, right. run by this ex-diplomat Matthew Gould. They wasted, I think, almost 12, I mean, I think 12 or 13 million quid trying to do this before realising that, oh, actually, there's private companies who are quite capable of doing that. I mean, that guy... If he was in the private sector, Matthew Gould obviously should have been fired straight away. That hasn't happened. Don't know. But we should always look into that. I mean, it's, it's, you, you see these kind of problems emerging time and time again. So, yes, I mean, Serco, this contract does seem a bit dubious, but this is the thin end of the wedge in terms of the government messing up time and time again with these contracts. Yeah. And I think the problem here is that you get these large companies like Serco who basically exist purely and simply uh, to rinse money from the government. There is literally no business that they do which does not involve government money. So therefore, they somehow put themselves up as the people who can manage all sorts of government projects because, um, you know, the Blair government sort of set these these big companies up and more or less said, look, we will outsource it to you. It will no longer be the government's responsibility. Um, and they have got, I suppose, what you would say is a legacy uh, so that whenever they go to the Home Office or the Department for Work and Pensions or, or for example, um, I don't know, the Foreign Office, they can say, oh, look, this is what we already do. Why don't you give us this to do as well? And it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely the case with the very, the very largest companies. I think there's, there's sort of ways that the government does some procurements very well on a, on a much smaller scale. So if you look at sort of the big picture, so the, the average profit rate across all UK companies with the latest data was just over 9%. Um, if you look at quite a few of the train companies, the franchise, franchisees, I mean, some of them do it really badly and some of them do, do it very well. I think the average profit margin is 2 or 3%. So I would, I would definitely push back against a view which is usually positive by the Labour Party and those on the left, which say that, oh, well, ultimately, you know, all private companies to do any kind of work for the government. They're just profiteering. They're just exploiting taxpayers. There are instances of that, certainly. Don't get me wrong. I mean, BAE systems, um, I mean, they're just complete cowboys with, I mean, how they've, how they've done the carrier strike system. But, you know, putting forward this position, which I think, I think Corbyn and McDonald came up with last year of basically yeah. doing this, you know, NHS drug service, just, you know, get rid of the private drug companies or not get rid of them, just stop using their drugs and just, we'll just take it in-house. I mean, that's a completely absurd proposition, just having this, you know, mm. junior minister for drugs in the, you know, east of England's uh, NHS. I mean, we also off. know in the, in, the, in the case of Serco, they've been involved in quite a few controversies over the years. You know, they were caught up in that sexual abuse scandal and one of the immigration detention centres, which they were running. Uh, they've been in trouble in Scotland because they were trying to evict people uh, who were asylum seekers out of properties that they were running. You yeah. know, they haven't exactly got a spotless record. And yet that doesn't seem to have any effect on whether they get new contracts to do anything. Yeah, as I said, I'm quite happy haven't haven't covered themselves with glory. And I think I think the, this has got worse over the years because you've got this expansion of the Quango state. So ministers will say, well, it's not my responsibility because ultimately it's the responsibility of, let's say, NHS England. Yeah. So Simon Stevens, who runs NHS England, will turn around and say, yes, we've messed this up slightly, Minister, but we're going to go on to it. So, that, you know, central government departments are more and more removed from the impact of the decisions which they take and how our money is spent on these decisions. Right. What needs to happen with, with these kind of contracts um, and many other areas of the state is that ministers need to be held directly accountable for decisions which they are ultimately responsible for. Just hiding behind the guise of, well, it's a private company, so it's not our responsibility to make sure that money is spent effectively, um, just cannot cut the mustard. So bring, bring the responsibility much closer to the minister, and hopefully these kind of, these kind of decisions will become much more transparent. And this is the other situation that I'm looking at here. Look at the board of directors. Sir Roy Gardner, Rupert Soames, Angus Coburn, John Rishton, Kirsty Bashforth, Eric Bourne, Ian L. Mokadem. These are all what I would regard as professional executives, right? They sit on the boards of all sorts of different companies. Um, they have very little responsibility uh, personally. And they simply are on the gravy train making an absolute fortune. Thank you very much indeed. And they don't even have to work for it. Yeah, 
as I, as I said, I mean, to the original point, there's a very dangerous symbiotic relationship with these with these firms, and you'll see you will see a lot of um, former civil, you know, senior civil servants as well. He might have got a ridiculous payoff, even though they haven't been fired, just basically retiring. Yeah. Will then go on to in these boards, and there's there's one quango called ACOVA, I think, the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments. And to to my knowledge, I don't think they've specifically prohibited either a former minister or a former senior civil servant going off relatively quickly to go and work in a company which they might have been directly overseeing. Mm. Uh, sorry, a, a, a client which they might have been directly overseeing, or a company which they would have had a contract with. Right. Um, and that I mean that stinks. I mean, there's, there's a clear revolving door, and until Westminster says enough of this, you, you can't exploit that kind of relationship for your own personal financial gain. These decisions will keep coming up again and they'll, uh, they'll keep going the wrong. Yeah, and I'm picking on Serco right now because they happen to be in the eye of the storm. But they're not the only company. You mentioned Capita. Uh, we had Marillion, uh, who, uh, Carillion rather, Marillion's a band, isn't it? Uh, Carillion, who, <laughs> went, uh, who went bust. And, uh, you know, yeah. there is this kind of secret society almost, which is what I object to the most about the way governments run, where nobody talks about it. You know, when did you last hear Boris Johnson mentioning this company, Serco, and how much money they're taking out of the public purse? It's quite extraordinary to me. Yeah, and it's also the way, I mean, slightly you know, boring prosaic point, but it's often the way that this is presented in government accounts. So you can't easily discern how much has gone to you know, either an individual company or has been you know, moved, to, moved to different sources of doing that. Yeah. Obviously, PFI was a really big issue about 10 or 15 years ago. I think actually on balance, PFI can work pretty effectively. There are some, there are some instances where it's just gone completely disastrously. But again, well, it can work, but my, object, my objection to it, and it's not because I object to people making money because I'm very much in favour mm. of private individuality, but what I am objecting to is the ability for somebody to sign a contract and to do nothing other than wait for the money to roll in from the public purse i just think it's morally wrong yeah no entirely right um but uh, as soon as as we can if ministers are held held to account much more on this then theoretically these kind of decisions shouldn't be happening at the same time Mm. you're just pressuring these companies to get a huge portion of their revenue from taxpayers needs to be a regular daily occurrence and for them or anyone else to just sit back and think well you know great Cheers for the cash or you know, go off and try and do some kind of element of the contract which I've been awarded um, is not sufficient. So we've got, you know, we've got tools to do this National Audit Office, which is quite regularly, parliamentary committees do this quite regularly. But to put it on a much more um, systematic basis is the way to avoid these kind of pop-ups in fusion. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Duncan Simpson there from the Taxpayers Alliance. Serco. Uh, are, as far as I'm concerned, in the eye of the storm right now. And what they need to do uh, is to stop refusing to talk to me. Uh, They need to come on this show and they need to put themselves up for some rigorous questioning. Because quite frankly, the way things are going, uh, they are a disgrace, not only to this country, uh, but to the taxpayers who fund them, to the government that somehow gave them these contracts. And you need to come out, open your eyes, step out of the cave where you count your money and justify what it is that you're doing. Tell us how many illegal asylum seekers, illegal migrants, whatever you want to call them, are being housed by you at our expense. Where they are, how many of them there are, how many of them you expect there to be by the end of the year, and we want answers and we want them now. And if you don't want to give us answers, that's fine. We'll just keep pursuing you until you really, really, really wish you'd given us answers in the first place. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Let's talk about dogs, though, now, because one, it's one of my favourite subjects. And two, uh, we're going to have some pretty hot weather again coming up this week. It was really, really roasting at the weekend. Friday, I tell you what, when I walked out of the building here on Friday afternoon, and when it was 35 degrees in London, I thought I was in Mexico City or something. I mean, it was, it was almost that heat where you can't quite catch your breath. It's so hot that you can't really actually breathe properly. Coming up this weekend, it's going to be hot again. And a report has come out uh, in which it is said that basically, please do not walk your dog in the hot weather because it could be as bad as locking the dog in the car. Let's talk to Ira Moss, uh, who's the CEO of All Dogs Matter. Ira, very good uh, afternoon. Well, morning to you, I should say. Still morning. Afternoon, morning to you as Thank well. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Now, I've got a Labrador um, and a friend of mine's got a Labrador. And mm-hmm. my friend's Labrador is very susceptible to heat because he's a bit more kind of my, my Labrador is quite lazy. So he doesn't really exert himself terribly much. But but the other one uh, who's black as a black lab uh, runs yeah. about all the time and he gets to the point where he literally I mean, if you're if we're looking after him, you worry that he's going to have some kind of a seizure because he's he, you know, he pants, mm. he gets that hot and that excitable in the hot weather. Mm, yes. I mean, obviously, black dogs are going to attract their coats are going to attract the heat um, more than, say, a yellow lab. Um, 
plus if they're a, a, a sort of running strain so mm. um, or a working strain. But um, it, it is going to be even hotter. I think it's 35 degrees on Friday or Saturday. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, and there is a, a, of us that are lucky enough to maybe live sort of by the heath or by a pond, the dogs can go swimming. That That's great as right. well. But I do bear in mind that if you can imagine when you're on a beach and that the sand's really hot when you're walking from the sea back to your, your nice bed, um, dogs' paws, if they're walking on the pavement yeah. um, or, or rather than the grass, that is really, really hot for their uh, little pads. So do avoid pavement. Always take... Um, some water with you. You can yes. get these great little uh, water dispensers for dogs now in any of the sort of pet shops or online. So please take those with you that you can sort of, even, even not just to drink, you mm. can throw over the back of their neck. There's some great cooling um, uh, sort of body suits and little scarves or wet flannel you can put on their back. But the main thing is just don't walk them, um, particularly the flat-faced dogs that are yeah. so popular now. They've become so fashionable, the pugs and right. Frenchies. Just just don't walk them yeah. is what we'd advise and I'm sure vets would advise and so many people um, have bought dogs over lockdown which kind of isn't great as far as we're concerned as a rehoming charity but they don't really um, understand or maybe not have been to puppy training schools because they've been closed and they don't realise that dogs just don't really want to or need to be out you know, no. in temperatures over 25 degrees. No, I, mean, I was going to ask you, is there, a, is there an actual number? Because obviously, um, I suppose in the Northern Hemisphere, where, where the dogs are not used to the heat, um, it's, it, you know, they, 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 you, can, you can, I mean, I can see my dog just kind of struggling with, with, Hunting, with, yeah. with anything, you know, and he just, he just lies there, he finds some shade, yeah. we try and keep him out of the sun. Um, it's, it's good that you say, you know, just keep them sort of wet and even just hose them down every now and again just to keep yeah, them cool. Yeah, great, hose know. them if you can, or if you can get them to a pond sort of, you know, early evening. Yeah. Um, but, you know, animals are very clever and they're very resourceful. And you'll see, you know, when you're abroad, particularly dogs, and, and cats will lie, they will naturally lie in the shade. They don't want to go out. They're very clever and yeah. they will go and lie in, in a cool area. They don't want to go out. You know, just don't force them. Cars, again, we all know about sort of dogs dying in, yes. in cars. Um, so obviously if you are going in a car, keep the um, keep your windows down or, yeah. or the air con on. But but really we'd advise, I mean, I'm, I'm not a vet. We're, we're a rehoming charity, but I'm, I'm sure, and I don't want to give the actual temperature in case I got it wrong and someone screams at me, but uh, we would probably advise sort of over maybe 23 degrees, mm. particularly, as you say, the heavy-coated dogs like Labradors that have got sort of huskies and, and, and the, you know, flat-faced dogs mm. or any dog, really. But but just be sensible. You just take a bottle of water for yourselves. Um, you know, make sure you have water on you at all times because dogs can quickly um, drop. Their temp- you know, their temperature can drop and if you're in the middle of a park somewhere and you're not near your car and you need to get them to a vet because they've got heat heat exhaustion, it's going to be very tricky to carry the dog back and find a local vet over the weekend, depending on the size of, of your dog, sure. you know, particularly if it's a large breed. Right. So just just be sensible and, just, again, think of their little, their, their paws on a on a hot surface, you know, just feel the, the pavement, um, you'll, you'll feel the, the temperature rise on, on the pavement and, you know, think, think I try and sort of, sort of say to people, you know, in, you know, think of yourself by a swimming pool or a beach in a hot climate, how how hot your 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 soles, your feet can feel when you're running back, you know, to um to, to get to your bed because yes. it sounds so hot. Yeah, I was going to ask you. I mean, one question is if you don't walk the dog on a particular day because it is so hot, is there a problem with that? Because you know how they love to walk and they do have their exercise and all that. But I guess if you if you don't do it for one or two days, it's not the end of the world, right? Well, you you can, of course you can walk them, but just go out really early. So sort of go out by eight nine o'clock maximum is what we'd recommend. And you'll normally find I'm I'm the Hampstead Heath, so you'll always find in any of the dog friendly areas that people there's always a higher amount of dog walkers out when it's going to be really hot earlier in the morning yes. and again maybe after seven seven o'clock in the evening when it cools down a bit so obviously dogs still want to go out and yeah. they, they need to go out and if you're not fortunate enough if you say live in london or a city and you, you haven't got your own garden you're in a flat of course you need to get your dog out but just be sensible and go out before nine it's probably maximum nine just don't you know don't go out at midday when it heats at its highest point 
and again after seven o'clock in the evening when it cools down yes. just be sensible really right and i mean without wishing to make your dog look a bit dopey i mean is it worth if you, if, if you are going to a very hot beach because you want the dog to to sort of roll around in the surf and get a little bit cooler yeah. i mean can you can you get little socks for them for the for the pads or is that sort of going yeah, too yeah far? you can buy um i mean there's so many things you can buy online now for dogs or for anything really i'm sure if you go go online you can get you know like when they cut their as a dog only you know if they cut their paw or they go to the vet yes. you have to buy those little boots um but i think you can get little socks as well so mm. yes you can i'm sure you can get um stuff online i'm not sure that the names and, and, and the brands but they will be available and there's some really good cooling mats yeah um cooling mats do um special like little bandanas that, that, that will cool that keep cool while you're out um so there are some great things nowadays that you, you can buy online however we would still stress i mean beaches probably at midday probably won't allow there's probably certain beaches that won't allow dogs anyway so you don't want to drive somewhere yeah. in the day uh, get to the beach three hours later and find that you can't um take your dog out and then you know you obviously can't leave them in a car because chances are no, of course. Die, I mean, it's easy yeah. enough to find out whether the beaches are open. I mean, down in Sussex, yeah. for example, you know, there's sections of the beach in Bexhill where I go where you can't mm. take the dog, but then there's loads of sections of the beach where you can. Yes, yes. And, and you know, labs obviously love water. And, and I'm sure if you, you know, there are areas in London and if you Google online that have got um, dog friendly ponds that, that you can go to, um, they're probably going to be busy. You don't want too many dogs in a pond together because they may, um, may end up having a little sort of row possibly. Right. Um, but it's just that, say, at the moment, there's so many new dog owners that have bought dogs and haven't been able to research for whatever reason, and there haven't been puppy classes open and vets are very limited. So they, they, as new dog owners, may just not understand that. So I think it's, I think for kind of hardcore dog owners like our, ourselves that have had maybe dogs for years or a long time, I think what we're concerned about is lots of new novice dog owners that have thought, oh, it's locked down, great, it's going to be warm, let's get a dog and haven't really thought about it and just really don't understand. Yes. No, I think that's very good advice, Ira. Thanks very much indeed. Ira Moss there, a CEO of All Dogs Matter. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let us talk now, though, to Scott Lucas, a friend of Talk Radio, very much a man who I've had one or two crossed swords with over time. But today uh, it's homeschooling time, so we're not going to have a row. Uh, We're just going to talk about the facts of the matter, because I thought what a good plan it would be to get everybody to understand how the American uh, election system works, because it's very different from ours. They have an electoral college system. And Scott, who is, of course, professor of international politics at the University of Birmingham, is going to tell us exactly how it works. So collect your children, gather them around the old uh, radio, uh, get them around the TV if you're watching on YouTube, and we will educate you. Scott, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Thank Look, you. I'm still trying to understand it myself, but we'll <laughs> give it a go. Well, listen, I'm sure there are plenty of people who would argue uh, that uh, there are some people who, who take advantage of it in some ways or not. Uh, we're not going to go anywhere near the, uh, the whether it should be taking place in November or not. But it's basically about the fact that the difference, I suppose the main difference in your system in America than ours is that the number of votes cast actually doesn't matter. Well, Mike, in a way, they're similar. Let me explain, because I think what you're talking about is that in America, you have this curiosity, goes back to the 18th century, called the Electoral College. Now, that is a number of delegates from each state who are chosen by the voters in November's election, and they then cast their electors' ballots up in Washington, D.C. So in other words, the popular vote doesn't decide who the president is, it's those 55 electors from California or those three from Alaska or there's 10 or 11 from Alabama, Mm. you put all of that together. But the easiest way for me to try to understand this is is that you kind of have the same system in the United Kingdom, you just call it an electoral college. And that is when you choose your head of government, uh, you actually, he's actually chosen by 650 members of parliament. And they of course are elected in 650 constituencies sort of 650 little mini states, if you will. And remember that in the UK, that's a winner take all. Mm. If you get, you know, if you get 51% of the vote in your constituency, or even 33%, but more than anybody else, you've won. So in the United States, in each of these states, it's a winner take all thing. If the largest state, California goes 5149 for Joe Biden over Donald Trump or vice versa, that person gets all the delegates and that works all the way through each of the states where you get this curiosity in America. 
that from 1876 to 2000, the person who won the popular vote also won the Electoral College and became president. But in 2000, Al Gore won the most votes. It was George W. Bush who narrowly won the Electoral College after a dispute over those Florida votes, you might remember. Yeah. And then the second time in history that happened, where someone lost the popular vote but won the Electoral College, Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton in 2016. Right. And so, I mean, given that that has happened twice relatively recently, mm-hmm. is there any pressure, for example, on the system to make it different, to make it more, I suppose, even-handed, so that if more people do vote for one particular candidate, that that candidate ends up as the winner? Oh, there, there's recurrent movements that talk about the idea that this should be a popular vote. But of course, the problem with going to a popular vote now is, is that you could be the party that's disadvantaged by it. So it just so happens that the way the electoral map is set up right now, the Democrats win big. I mean, they win by 15, 20 percent in the largest states in New York and in California. So they pile up millions of votes in leads in the big states. And then the Republicans, as in 2016, have won narrowly Hmm. in states that are smaller than New York and California, say like Wisconsin, say like even Michigan uh, or say like a place like Missouri. And so the result is, is that even though Hillary Clinton piled up a three million popular vote advantage over Donald Trump on the East and West Coast, Trump won the presidency because he of 80,000 votes that swung the other way towards him in what's called the swing states, mm. Michigan, Wisconsin and uh, ooh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. So and I think Ohio as well. Was Ohio not yeah, one in Ohio. Well? So the Republicans, in other words, right now, it's really not in their interest and I'm not playing party politics, it's just pragmatic politics. It's not in their interest to go to a popular vote right now because they're the ones who happen to be benefiting from those narrow wins in the key swing states. Right. And are they called swing states because they literally swing from one side to the other, that they don't always, they can't always be counted? I mean, California can always be counted as a Democrat blue state, as can New York, I guess. But Ohio and, and Wisconsin, as you said, Pennsylvania, they change. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right, Mike. In a quote normal election, yeah. this one isn't normal. We can talk about that. But in a normal election, you can call about forty to, of the fifty states months before the vote is held. It's those ten states, and again, we're talking about Midwest states: Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. You talk about it, Florida, huge, had decided the election in two thousand. You talk about possibly, for example, a state like Missouri or a state like North Carolina. Those are the ones that we focus on because they usually are within about one to two percent for one candidate or, or the other. Mm. It's interesting, really, isn't it? Because um, the, the, the campaigning that goes on in those states often mm. defines who actually ends up winning. And famously, I think Hillary didn't really pay much attention to Ohio and Wisconsin and, and therefore, as a result, kind of lost them. They were kind of known as the Rust Belt, weren't they, for, for Donald Trump. But as far as the, um, the demographics go, does that change the way that these states operate in terms of who they vote for, or is it more about the personality? It, it works on all of these, Mike. But to start from this, what you're talking about is in some of the swing states, you're talking about, for example, voters who have tended to be classified as in the center, but relatively conservative in their viewpoints. A lot of them have worked in traditional manufacturing interest, industries. So you call them the Rust Belt. Mm. So when the American economy turns down, they tend to vote for the opponent. They voted for Barack Obama in 2009. They voted for Donald Trump narrowly in 2016. But in other swing states, it's the diversity of the population that matters. Uh, Rather than being red Republican states or blue Democrat, they become purple because they have a variety of population, white, Hispanic, African-American, and because it's not just all working class or all upper class. And states that are problematic for the Republicans, that are changing because of that, that have usually been Republican but may not be this year, include Arizona, Georgia, and importantly, Texas. And will it change things depending on who uh, Biden decides to pick as his running mate? Because a lot of talk that he's more than likely to pick a woman uh, as his running mate. Um, I, I'm assuming that probably will be the case. But but does he gain anything in terms of any of those swing states as a result of that? I think you can always get a marginal boost from your vice presidential choice, and, and it will be a woman. Joe Biden has said that. It quite probably will be a woman of color. Uh, think about an African-American like Kamala Harris, Karen Bass, Val Demings. Uh, but I think it's only marginal, Mike. As much as we pay attention to the vice presidential uh, choice, 
it's the big issues that sort of decide elections. Bill Clinton's people in the 1990s famously said, it's the economy, stupid. Yeah. But of course, on top of the economy this year, which is in a very difficult state, uh, we've got the pandemic, which is likely to still be raging by November. And we've also got the issues that have raised by the anti-racism marches across the U.S. since May. Yeah. And interestingly as well, uh, for people listening on this side of the Atlantic, um, there's no cap, is there, as far as I'm aware, on the amount of money you can spend on campaign contributions and on campaign advertising, whereas in this country, obviously, there is. There was an attempt to limit it, Mike, um, in the start of the 21st century with campaign finance reform. But what that reform did is it, it limited what you call hard money. And hard money is money that's given directly to the campaign of, say, a Donald Trump or a Joe Biden. And you would identify whether that came from a business, whether it came from an activist group like the National Rifle Association. But what happened on all sides, Republican, Democrat, is they started to turn towards soft money. They would create these groups called political action committees, mm. now known as PACs or super PACs. Right. And those PACs are not under the same regulations. So they don't have the same limits on how much they can spend. And also because they technically say that they are not part of the campaign, they don't have the same restrictions on what they can say uh, under the Federal Election Commission's rules. So, so they literally can spend hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And will do so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one thing to watch this year has been that uh, the spending balance tended to favor Donald Trump through these PACs up until June and July. But in the last two months, Biden has overtaken him in spending through both hard and soft money. Yeah. Fascinating times. Well, November is going to be very interesting indeed. I'm assuming uh, that the race will go ahead and the election will go ahead there. Stuart, thank Scott, sorry, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Scott Lucas there, professor, professor of international politics, uh, who's over at University of Birmingham, uh, a man who knows a thing or two uh, about the way the electoral system works in the US of A. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.